Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, on the night of November 8, 2016, many writers and journalists were preparing pieces on what it would mean for the United States to elect its first woman president. Those works obviously didn't make it to print. Writers Samita Mukhopadhyay and Kate Harding took in that moment, then decided to create something from it. They curated an anthology of 23 essays titled Nasty Women, Feminism, Resistance, and Revolution in Trump's America. Contributors include Rebecca Solnit, Cheryl Strayed, Samantha Irby, Nicole Chung, and Katha Pollitt. This Nasty Women book tour event was presented by Town Hall Seattle in partnership with NARAL Pro-Choice Washington at Seattle First Baptist Church on October 10th. Mukapadai and Harding joined Seattle writer Ijeoma Aluo in discussion about the book and what's next for feminist activism. Sonia Harris recorded the discussion. Please note, this conversation contains unedited language of an adult nature. Thank you all so much for coming out. This is amazing. I love seeing so many um, faces here to talk about this book and kind of the subject matter around it. And I just, as a lifelong Seattleite, it's always wonderful to see audiences come out on a Tuesday. I almost said Monday, because I've been operating like this is Monday all week, because I'm a writer and I don't leave my house. So <laughs> it, could be, it could be Saturday, it's the same significance to me. Um, but it's wonderful to have you here. I, when I first was asked to, do, to discuss this book, um, knowing it came from Kate, whom, whose work I followed for a while, um, I was like, oh, okay. And, you know, the subject matter for me, the title for me, I am, I am not part of the Pantsuit Nation. Um, and then, of course, the email followed up with, and these are the writers that are in the project. And I was like, oh, wait. And I, I, I'm so glad I took a look. I'm so glad I looked at this project because it's such a wonderful book. Um, it is such a beautifully diverse book, and I don't mean that in like the weird tokenism way, I mean diversity of thought, as well as you know the intersectionality represented within. So I am super honored to be asked to host this discussion and to um, be able to kind of help introduce this book to many of you. I know that this book just recently came out, so a lot of you haven't had the chance to read it cover to cover, and I hope that you will after this. So we had a lovely introduction. I do want to thank our hosts. First off, I would love to thank Town Hall for having us here. Yes, I would, thank you. Yes. I would love to also recognize the somewhat historic space that we are in and thank this lovely church for hosting us and, and allowing us to be here as well. I would also like to acknowledge the land that we are on, the Duwamish land. Um, and also I would love to thank Nairal for their lovely um, opening comments as well. So all of that, I wanna take a moment to just recognize that. All right, okay, that's about as, that's about as spiritual as I get. Um, <laughs> I don't have much more in me. So I would 
absolutely love, first off, to just kind of talk a little bit, and we had introductions, but I would love to kind of hear in your own words kind of um, who you are. We'll get in a second about like what brought you to this project, but just kind of like what brought you to this space of life in general. So whomever wants to go first, Kater Samita. Um, wow, I wasn't. <laughs> Who am I? Why am I here? <laughs> well, I'm a late 30s single woman in Manhattan. Uh, <laughs> um, so I, yeah, I've been a feminist activist um, for 20 years, I would say. I have an undergrad in, in women and gender studies, um, which is actually where I met Jessica Valenti, who's the founding editor at Feministing. Um, and so in the early 2000s, she invited me to join um, writing at this thing called a blog. And I was like, what's a blog? <laughs> um, <laughs> which I think kids today are probably asking the same question. <laughs> really short period of time where everybody had a blog and then we got book deals from those blogs. Uh, <laughs> imagine saying that to your uh, agent now. Um, <laughs> um, so I became a writer in the mid-2000s um, and got involved in kind of specifically women of color's experiences within the political system. And so I, you know, at Feministing was the voice that was like, we need to talk about Oscar Grant and we need to talk about intersectionality and we need to talk about Kimberly Crenshaw and kind of had a moment once where I, you know, I have a master's in transnational feminist theory and I was trying to explain it to my mother who's a working class immigrant from India and realized that she didn't understand any of the theory that I was reading. And I was like, my life's project is going to be bringing this very difficult to access theory to someone like my mother. And that is how I ended up in kind of journalism and doing more mainstream work. Um, and so, yeah, I have a book out called Outdated, Why Dating is Ruining Your Love Life. <laughs> it came out about six years ago. Um, and then this project, which uh, we'll talk about in a moment. So. Wonderful. Um, and so I also come from the blogging world, and that's how I knew Samita. Um, I got started, I was always a writer, and in fact, my degrees are in English and creative writing. Um, and I had very little training in women's or gender theory or gender studies. Um, so I learned a lot from the feminist blogs, like feministing as I was starting out, and I was just reading them at the same time that everyone was like, you're a writer, why don't you have a blog? Um, so I was like, well, I'm gonna start a feminist blog. Um, and my focus was something that was largely missing from the feminist blogosphere at the time, which was fat politics. Um, which uh, has since been taken up and beautifully owned by Ijoma's sister-in-law, Lindy West. <laughs> so I'm sure you all know her. <laughs> and when I saw her come along, I was just like, thank God, I don't have to do so much work anymore. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and she's terrific. And I am, um, so I'm the married white lady, so I am like the Pantsuit Nation demographic. <laughs> um, and although I wasn't totally into that, I was very much um, a Hillary supporter, which was an interesting thing to be when you move in this, in feminist circles, which, um, you know, she was very much seen as insufficiently radical, which I can agree with and we can discuss that. But um, I knew coming to this book, like there was no way, I didn't want to do Pantsuit Nation the book. Like first of all, somebody else is probably doing it. Um, and second, that's, that's not the feminism that matters to me. Like, it, it was meaningful to me in many ways to think about electing our first woman president, but that wasn't all it was, um, and it wasn't all of the suffering that came from seeing Donald Trump going to the White House. 
Um, and so Samita and I started talking almost immediately after the election. Um, and you can go into your little story. Oh, can I just say though, because I wanted to say before I forget that the one other place that I wanted to thank, because I am representing the capitalist demographic, is Elliott Bay Books, <laughs> who, uh, who hooked up with Town Hall and, and helped make all of this happen, and they will be selling our books, so thank you very much for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or the course. origin story. No, I'm, I'm going to skip that segue yeah. completely. Just leave it hanging. No, I'm just yeah. kidding. Please. <laughs> Um, okay, so the night of the election, I was working in a newsroom um, and I had filed a 2,000 word piece to my editor about the historic uh, moment of the first ever woman president. <laughs> yeah, file it to my editor and get in a car and go to the Javits Center waiting for history to be made. I mean, I had been crying for the last three days. I had so many friends on the campaign. I was, you know, I worked at a millennial outlet um, called Mike.com and every one of my colleagues was a Bernie supporter. So I was like that old shrill feminist in the newsroom that was just like, no, but Hillary. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I, uh, Obviously, we know how the night went. Um, I, I did not publish the essay, and what I thought was going to be an after party um, turned out I had to go back to the office and ask what predominantly, you know, at that point, my staff was queer, young queer people of color fighting back tears for what just happened to have to basically write in, you know, in, in our, on our website, Donald Trump was, was projected to become the president. Um, and so that entire process was unbelievably emotional. Um, and so the next day, um, they had me do a, a, a video where I talk about it and I'm like crying uh, because one of the things that I had thought about was if a young girl is born right now, she would have been born into a, like a, the first ever woman president. Kate sees this video of me crying <laughs> on the internet. It made me cry. <laughs> and she literally leaves a comment. She's like, I bet there's an anthology worth of those essays. <laughs> and I was like, I bet there is. Let's, let's turn that into something. Oh, that's amazing. I was just thinking, like, I bet, like, it would be weird to have, like, a, just a week of, like, let's just publish what we think we would be writing right now. <laughs> because oh. as a writer, you feel there's so much you have to write. And it's the worst. Like, you're not having fun anymore at all. Like, you don't get, like, lighthearted yeah. moments to write about jokes. Um, and, and, of course, it still wouldn't have been all fun and games had the election turned out differently. Yeah. But I like to imagine the other things I could be doing. And so many other of my fellow female writers and trans writers and disabled writers and queer writers um, could be writing right now <laughs> if it wasn't please don't let the world explode, oh my God, please. Um, I think it would be, it would be a fun vac writer vacation to be like, no, let's imagine that this isn't the alternate universe. What are our problems? What are we thinking about now other than, you know, impending doom? Yeah. Be like, this historic decision on choice where we have repealed the Hyde Amendment <laughs> is great, but does it go far enough? Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so I, I actually did want to talk a little bit more about like the origins of this project because, you know, I think everything was a whirlwind post-election. I think a lot of people were shocked and stunned and kind of didn't were grasping. Um, how did you come together? Because I, I'm looking at the timeline, having just finished a book, <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know how this happened so quickly um, because I wouldn't have finished my proposal by now, let alone had a book put together. What was it like to be going through all of that shock and how, what was your kind of frame of mind putting this all together, reaching out to people, getting all of that done? Yeah, I can speak. 
for that. Um, I knew, I had, I was so upset um, and just in shock that I needed something to put my energy into and that's what this project really became. Um, and I also knew that other people felt that way so it would be a really good time to get them to commit to something that they might have said no to a month later because <laughs> everyone was like, we need to do something right now. And I was like, hey, Cheryl Strayed. <laughs> we have a thing you can do right now. Um, so it was actually surprisingly, uh, overwhelmingly everyone said yes. Actually, we couldn't even accommodate the number of people that wanted to do, wanted to have essays in it. Um, but, you know, as you mentioned, we like, we're, we're very particular about the perspectives that we wanted in it. Um, you know, as, as Kate likes to say, she's like, I capped the white women. Like we had to like, we were like, okay. And now, you know, w it, was, it was really important that, um, and the other thing I was really feeling, I was really in my feelings about a lot of different things on the left. And I wanted to have a set of essays that really reflected the fragmentation as much as this kind of cohesive, like, oh, we're all upset that Hillary lost, but actually instead, like, this revealed all of these um, kind of bruises on the left that we really wanted to kind of have articulate words around. Um, and, and also, even though it did come together very quickly in publishing terms, um, but literally, you know, fortunately, uh, we had an agent who knew an editor who was very interested right away. So, I mean, we had this sold by the end of November. Um, and then we had assignments out and sort of hilariously, our first deadline we gave them was like January 15th. We wanted essays in before the inauguration. Um, and, and between d depression and just the reality of those timelines, that didn't really happen. But so they took until about March. And what we really wanted to do as people who have published a lot online and done like the hot take factory was give people some breathing space to write something more nuanced, more thoughtful, put it through a round or two of editing. Um, really kind of just, you know, even though it seems like no time compared to when you are literally on a deadline where it's like, all right, I need something start to finish in two hours. Um, you know, giving somebody two months was an incredible amount of breathing room. Uh, and so it was important to us to get that and also to, you know, we got people that we wanted to represent specific identities or cover specific topics, but then gave them a great deal of freedom where, um, you know, Samita earlier was like, yeah, we messed up, we don't even have lesbians in the book. And I was like, yes, we do. We just don't have an essay about being a lesbian. And like, it was important to me that we weren't just asking people like, you know, write about that identity that we pegged you for, um, but that it was just a matter of, you know, in 2017, like, we were just talking earlier about how we're getting frustrated by every journalist is asking us like, how did you put together such a diverse roster? And it's like, a, Samita's been doing that professionally for ages. Like, that's what she does is find journalists of color and pull them in. Um, and B, we were like, it's, we're not gonna do a feminist anthology and, and not have it be intersectional. I mean, you act like that's not novel, but it is. No, I, I know, I know, it is. What? <laughs> I like to, and I say this about like the way that I approach rape culture, which is one of my big subjects too, is that I like to talk in that like, we've already decided on this. Like, this is a settled question. Like, feminism needs to be intersectional. And if you're just hearing that for the first time, well, come on, catch up. Uh, <laughs> I mean, but I should also say it took me a while to get there. Um, so I, I don't want to act like I have known this from birth. I had to be taught and chastise a bit. <laughs>
Yeah, and, and you'll see in like a lot of the reviews, people are surprised. I think they expected it to just be this like Hillary Redux. Um, and then when you get through all the essays, you're like, oh no, this is like a set of really critical perspectives that don't all, not everybody in the book was a Hillary supporter necessarily, um, but they all recognize that Trump is bad. It's <laughs> <laughs> a pretty low bar. Yeah. But, <laughs> Someone did ask us, they were like, did you consider a Trump supporter? I was like, absolutely I, not. Like, they have the White House. Like, yeah, they don't yeah. need my anthology. Like, I was sitting there putting on my thinky face, like, well, let me give you a thoughtful answer. I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, one thing that really I was pleasantly surprised by was seeing some names I recognize that I've loved for a very long time as writers, but I hadn't really considered writers of whose wheelhouse hasn't always been really political as, as far as their work, thinking of like Sam Irby, yeah. who is inherently political in just being an incredibly honest, queer, fat, black woman, but in that sort of politicalness of, yeah, I'm gonna show you the mundanity of my day and you're gonna actually see how queer, fat, black women live without any apology, but not necessarily, she's not publishing essays about politics and in fact, throughout most of the election, you know, it was, she continued writing about her life, which I think in a way was actually incredibly revolutionary. And also um, seeing um, Nicole Chung in there as well, who I have worked with at the establishment as an editor, and I primarily know her as a really talented editor. And it was, it was really fun to see their pieces and see um, a, a different facet of them. And Nicole's piece was, was beautiful and heartbreaking, and I, I highly, highly recommend um, well, read the whole thing, but also like slow down when you get to Nicole's and um, <laughs> spend some time. And, and Sam's, I mean, I just, I love everything Sam. Sam's the funniest writer in the world right now. If you're not following mm -hmm. Sam Irby, Bitches Gotta Eat is the name of her blog. It's, it's yeah. the best thing. If you're ever having a bad day, I, I alternate between that and the toast, like archives of the toast, <laughs> to, to put me back. But Where Nikki Chung was an editor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but did you reach out to them? Did you yeah. see possibility of that in their work? Because oftentimes, once you get stuck known for doing a thing, nobody thinks you can do anything else. Right, well, well, both of those were mine, actually, and that's where my literary background comes in handy, that I was just like, I want writers I love who I know can write killer essays, where Samita knows all the super political children that I don't. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I'm like, I can't bring you anybody under 35, but I can bring you. Um, and, and so, and also, I'm from Chicago, so I know Sam Irby personally, and I've kind of seen her come up, and, and just exactly what you said, she's the funniest writer working, period, and we knew that humor was going to be an important thing that we wanted in yeah. here. We didn't want it to be so serious, but it's also really interesting that you pull out those two, because those were the two who tried to say no. And fortunately, I knew them both well enough to say, no, you don't get to say no. Um, and Sam's was specifically like, I don't know anything about politics. You know, she always does this pose where she like pulls out like, I didn't even graduate from high school. And I'm like, listen, I get that. And I can get like that somewhere under that you are genuinely kind of intimidated by fancy political thinkers, but also A, you're a better writer than 99% of them and B, just what Ijoma said, that you know, your writing is inherently political and you don't have to sit here and make some massive political statement. You can just write about being you and that is a political statement these days. Yeah, I also feel like, I mean, I know she did that Times op-ed a couple of months ago that was about being poor. And one of the things, like one of 
like the reasons I was really attracted to her as a writer and I've, I've followed Bitches Gotta Eat forever. Um, and she also has a book out um, two called now. Uh, Two. Mm -hmm. um, the most recent, We're Never Meeting, we are in, never meeting in Real Life. Um, hilarious. Uh, she's so funny that like now Kate and I have been traveling together for a while now. It's been a week. <laughs> <laughs> and wait, it's been several years. It's been years. <laughs> and every time I'm, every time I'm laughing at my phone, she's like, "Are you reading Sam's Facebook page again?" Because <laughs> literally, she's that funny. Um, but that I think one of the conversations, and I and I talk about this in my essay that came out, was this intersection of class over here and then like identity over here, um, and kind of like gender or racial identity over here. Whereas they are obviously very overlapping, and I always felt like she as a writer without even trying to writes about class in a really profound way um, that I think a lot of self-proclaimed lefties have never even heard of her or wouldn't even know. Um, so that was important, I think, to, to have her there. And it, and it creates another level of accessibility where it's you know kind of like slipping in your vegetables when she's so funny and not overtly political and not at all academic that people can pick up points from that where they might reject somebody who takes the more kind of like, I'm going to teach you how things are tone. Yeah. You guys, she would be so embarrassed right now. I know, I know. I'm She'd glad there's like, video. What are you doing? Watch it. What are you doing? I'm sending her the link to the audio of this Sweet. just to ruin her day. We yeah. love you, Sam. <laughs> we're, she's, we are doing an event with her in Chicago. Oh, which nice. We're very excited about. You should yeah. play gonna, part to the audio of yeah. just us. Oh my God. Talking about her. We're I don't do know that. if you guys, yeah. if this is what you signed up for, but guess what? It's right. Samantha Irby hour. That's your new favorite writer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually think this would be a great time if one of you wanted to read a bit from the book. I, who volunteers to go first? I volunteered you because you're just going to be You're closer. <laughs> um, okay, so let's see. Holding a mic and reading at the same time. This is going to be awesome. Um, okay, so my um, okay, so I wrote the first essay in the book um, in lieu of an introduction, and I think really what inspired me to write this essay was the conversation I saw happening about identity politics after the election um, and this kind of swing on the left to move away from identity politics. Um, and so basically what I write about is the case for why we actually need them, and it kind of is why we picked the essays that we picked in the rest of the book. After Clinton lost the election, criticism of her campaign's approach came swiftly. In a much-discussed op-ed for the New York Times, Mark Lilla argued that American liberalism has slipped into a kind of moral panic about racial, gender, and sexual identity that has distorted liberalism's message and prevented it from becoming a unifying force capable of governing. Lilla's views were reinforced by liberals, also warning of the electoral consequences of following Clinton's strategy. In a Washington Post op-ed, John B. Judas wrote that the left overestimated the strength of a coalition based on identity politics. Echoing similar sentiments, Senator Bernie Sanders regularly criticized Clinton for failing to focus on issues of class. We need a Democratic Party that is not a party of the liberal elite, but of the working class of this country, Sanders said in, a March, said in March. It's not good enough to say, I am a woman, vote for me, he said at a rally in Boston after the election. What we need is a woman who has the guts to stand up to Wall Street, to the insurance companies, to drug companies, to the fossil fuel industry. Sanders was not wrong in suggesting we need more than token references to identity to galvanize authentic support from voters, but it's important to remember that most identity politics are about class. And Clinton did talk about class during her campaign, about equal pay for women, paid family leave, increasing the minimum wage, a fair tax system, and revitalizing American manufacturing. 
Exit polls also failed to substantiate the claims that Clinton's campaign didn't speak to economic anxieties in the electorate. Black women, the poorest demographic in the country, voted for Clinton at a rate of 94%. According to analysis of exit polls by the New York Times, 53% of Americans making less than $30,000 a year also voted for Clinton versus 41% for Trump. In those same exit polls, 52% of voters who listed the economy as their top political issue of concern voted for Clinton as opposed to 42% who voted for Trump. To suggest that progressives move away from identity politics in the service of a broader American narrative is also to suggest we ignore the heavy-handed role that sexism played in Clinton's loss. In both her 2008 and 2016 presidential campaigns, people critiqued her voice, her demeanor, and her appearance. She was considered untrustworthy, while her opponent, who wouldn't release his tax returns, the first candidate ever to refuse to do so, was supposedly a straight-talking, noble breath of fresh air. The press and the public became fascinated with Clinton's private server and leaked emails, both used to bolster the argument that she played by her own rules. Meanwhile, Trump was caught on the record repeatedly lying about everything from the unemployment rate to his own tax plan to ultimately refusing to disclose his own tax documents. But Clinton's critics persisted. They just didn't like her. Lost in the hubbub of the debate on the left over identity politics was that Trump, too, ran a campaign based on identity. But it was white identity and white fear. During the election cycle, he deflected criticism of racialized language as unnecessary political correctness, a derisive term used to describe liberals' attempts to express sensitivity towards minorities. An outgrowth of identity politics, political correctness has become, a, become an obsession of thinkers on the right and the left who are focused on the impact of PC culture. Or rather, on students running amok on college campuses demanding gender-appropriate terminology who have simply hamstrung the progressive movement. Left-leaning writers have caricatured, uh, sorry, have caricatured prior to the 2016 election safe spaces and trigger warnings as evidence that today's college students are intellectually coddled. New York Magazine columnist Jonathan Chait called PC culture exhausting, that being held to the standards of political correctness is difficult and ineffective and therefore tiresome. These critiques first came from staunch conservatives. In his 1998 book, Illiberal Education, author Dinesh D'Souza argued that political correctness impairs free speech, preventing society from talking openly about brutal truths. Trump built his campaign around speaking those brutal truths, which gave way to the rise of the alt-right and other white ethno-nationalist sentiments in the 2016 election cycle. He stoked fear of the other when he proposed a ban on Muslims. Oh, is it boring for you? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel when we keep talking about the election. Right, I know. <laughs> Sorry. He stoked fear of the other when he proposed a ban on Muslims entering the United States. He aggravated class anxieties by insinuating illegals would take jobs and used the fear to push forward the idea that we need a bigger, taller wall to keep Mexicans out of the country. As Leila Leilami argued in the New York Times, Trump won the votes of the white majority on a campaign that explicitly and consistently appealed to white identity and white anxiety. Wonderful. Did you all ever see the movie Untamed Heart? No? Uh, yes? Who's yeah. in that? It's amazing. Um, Marissa Tomei? Yes. yes. Rosie Press? Christian Slater. It's Christian Slater? Okay, yeah, yeah I did He's, see that a million years ago. He's got the baboon heart? Uh-huh. Yes. Um, <laughs> so this is relevant, trust me. Um, 
there's this scene where Rosie Perez, they work at this diner, right? And she has like this like gross sexist boss who's like, they're trying to gossip and he wants him to work and she says, you are like wet sand in my underwear. <laughs> and Jonathan Chait is like wet sand in my underwear. Oh. And every time I hear his name, I go, I almost did the same thing where it was all I could do not to interrupt you. It's so funny that you I know. I made, it, I made it I was face. like, what political correctness is, I'm like, Jonathan Chait is exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> he is um, thoroughly exhausting. Anyways, I just wanted to leave you guys with that in case. <laughs> in case you weren't familiar with Jonathan Chait or in case you needed an apt description for Jonathan Chait. <laughs> um, that's, that's one. So thank you for that. Yeah. I think that was a wonderful introduction to... Um, not only like the piece, but also kind of where we are now. So I think this is also a really good time to kind of segue into how this piece can be perceived now, because I think we are in a time where, I wouldn't say this is necessarily unique, it seems to be, I was actually just ranting for 45 minutes last night on Facebook about this. Um, it isn't unique for many on the left at every defeat to figure how can we be less left every time, and who can we kind of chuck off this ship in hope, hopes of keeping it afloat instead of shoring up the ship. Um, and what seems to be this time is just a whole scale attack on the concept of identity politics and intersectionality. And I find it quite interesting to see a book like this around the same time too that I'm regularly being sent like horrible articles about why intersectionality is the death of everything. Um, and we need to just keep, get back to the days where you could show up for the one issue that you cared about and then go home and not care about anything else. Um, how do you think that this work stands now as opposed to where it stood when you were conceiving it, unaware of what the next year would bring? It feels like it's been a thousand years and not 10 months, but you know, I think we know a little bit more about what this looks like. I, I feel like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not, as a, as a freelance writer who's been kind of out of the loop lately, nobody is emailing me stuff every day, um, I felt like there was an immediate backlash from guys like Chait and Lilla, and I mean, Dinesh D'Souza is always going to Dinesh, but um, <laughs> that, like, especially these, like, moderate or moderate presenting white guys who are old enough that they've been through a few cycles like this and so they thought, you know, this is what you do. When the left loses, you write your article about how the left needs to be more moderate and more centrist. Um, and so it felt like there was a whole ton of that noise immediately, but there's so much pushback this time. Um, where I think, you know, especially among younger people who were really mobilized in this election, um, going at it saying like, you know, no, we want to vote our values, which are way to the left of mainstream politics. Um, so that gives me some hope that there was more pushback to that narrative than there usually is. Yeah, I would say I have trouble finding people that agree with Lila openly, openly um, but I think that it's more subversive and when people say, like, we should, we need to, like, 
focus on you know a cohesive identity on the left and i think what's hidden in that is this kind of assumption that americans have this unified experience and and i think that interestingly you'll see like republicans love to promote women like they love to get a woman as high as they can even though it's a token reference i think sometimes progressives get caught in this trap where they're like well we don't want to be tokenizing we want to really like they're like so caught up in the myth of meritocracy that it's almost like, look, we tried to like have a woman win as a political strategy. It didn't work. So like, <laughs> let's just, you know, like we should have never given you money. Like it's literally that attitude. And I think that frighteningly, not only has nothing changed in the last year, I don't think the left has absorbed any of the lessons, like perfectly, frankly, but white identity is a very strong organizing um, factor right now. You have Nazis that are marching in the streets without their faces covered in this historical moment in you know, support of white purity. If that is not identity politics, I don't know what is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... We both very much come from a place of all politics is identity politics, and that's the end of it. Um, and I think to try and make an argument otherwise is to deny reality. Um, you don't you don't actually get to opt out of these identities if you are, if you have marginalized identities, the people who get to opt out and pretend they have no identity are basically white cis men, um, white cis straight men. And so th they're the ones largely um, who are writing this stuff about like, well, maybe this has gone too far. And it's like, yeah, that's because you get to pretend that you, know, you are this kind of objective identity-free being and not that like people who look and act and sound like you have been president for the entire history of this country. Yeah, and to respond to your also the kind of backlash between intersectionality and identity politics, I think there's a misunderstanding of what those things mean. Uh, you know, identity politics doesn't just mean like, have me up here because I'm a brown woman, but don't listen to my words. It's, you know, it's really, it's a way of looking at policy, right? So uh, the environment is an identity-based issue. Communities of color, specifically indigenous communities, are the most impacted by, say, um, by the um, Dakota Access Pipeline, right? Th that's an intersectional way of looking at a policy. That is a um, identity way of looking at a policy. You cannot look at criminal justice reform if you're not looking specifically at which races are disproportionately impacted by that, right? And, and so what does that make us as a as progressives if we say we don't want to take those things into consideration? What does that mean? What does that mean for our policy? And it's, it's what was so frustrating about the obsession with the white working class right afterwards where it's like, you know, these are, this is, this is an identity group and they have legitimate grievances that liberals should be addressing, but there is a working class that goes way beyond white people and why are we suddenly obsessed with the economic anxiety of this one racial group when class issues, you know, affect everyone. Um, yeah, I'm getting yelly. None of us can pay our bills. <laughs> right, exactly. I think, you know, it's interesting. Was, I was actually saying last night, I think a lot of what we like to assume in what we like to think of as expediency is that we can bake a cake and kind of substitute for these poisonous ingredients, thinking that in the end, if we can ice it nice enough, it's not going to make us sick. And we consistently compromise um, what are actually core values that we say that we believe in, which are things like equity and justice and equality. Um, those things are not negotiable. I mean, in, in their nature, they're not negotiable. Like, equality is not, you can't be like, 
20% equality. That like, <laughs> the, just the math doesn't work. And so if that's the thing you want to claim and you want to rally behind, and I also think if that's the thing that you want to get people excited about, you can't at the same time then go, okay, equality here for now and not here, but we're going to call it equality because that's just, that's, that's just not how words work. Um, and I think that what we have time and time again is those who are in charge, and in all movements, it will be the most privileged. Right? And I'm not just speaking in terms of race, right? Even within, you know, within anti-racist groups, within Black Lives Matter groups, even though groups founded by women, we oftentimes find that we get in there and it's going to be like a black dude that's like, hey, I'm in charge of this thing. Um, you will find that the first sacrifices are always made on the backs of, you know, the least empowered and the least privileged within those groups. And I, what I like about collections like this is sitting with different perspectives around a similar event. So we all see these things and we go, okay, well, this is what it looks like for different people. How are you hoping in the general dialogue moving forward, right? Because I think we all do have a lot of pain that's going to be with us, well, you know, for four years at least, <laughs> um, of how this all turned out, no matter how you wanted to vote. I don't think anyone in this room, no matter how you voted, I'm assuming if you voted for Trump, you're probably not here. Um, I'm gonna be safe in assuming, no matter how you voted, it's, this is not a good political time for you. You are not happy with how things are and how they look to be in the near future. So while we all have open wounds that are gonna be open, for a very long time, it's hard to heal from something that's still happening. Um, also, there is a sense of moving forward and looking at the now and, and you know, what needs to be done with the present horrific reality as it is. How are you hoping that this book kind of fits into that? Yeah, um, I really appreciate the way you asked that question because we keep getting asked, like, what is the path forward for America? And I'm like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's why I'm a writer, because I don't know. <laughs> uh, I mean, the hope is exactly that, that elevating this. So one of the things I am feeling so much as someone who is so deeply embedded in both journalism and activist communities is the trauma, is the trauma that we went through in the election and that when we talk to each other, we are not hearing each other. I am immediately triggered when someone says certain things about the election the way that they happened and they're like, you are a sellout and I'm like, you are a sexist and it's just like this like <laughs> infinite loop and I'm like, you support racists and they're like, I am so, you know, it's just this awful kind of loop that's happening and then we keep like re-performing it, this, 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 this kind of almost ritualistic trauma at this point of what happened in the election and my my hope and and you know and I, I know Kate says as well is like stepping back and letting other voices kind of speak what they're experiencing right now and that for us in on the left to hear each other's voices to have a moment of like oh okay like maybe you know you make this like strategic political decision but the bigger you know our bigger interest is actually much more shared um, and then I also think it's to help give um, people who feel really um, beaten down right now some courage and some talking points when they are talking to their family that's not quite as um, supportive of their political be beliefs. Um, yeah, I mean, I think 
Samita talked about wanting to kind of represent the fragmentation of the left, and I think that's something that we wanted to do with, I mean, not to use a totally hackney me metaphor, but to present it as a mosaic. Um, because I have come to, you know, especially as someone where I was a staunch Hillary supporter on Twitter, which meant a lot of Bernie supporters were just like, you can drop dead. And, um, and I mean, I get it, it was mutual. And <laughs> um, because, and also Twitter is just such a toxic environment. But, um, but, the, but we wanted, we sat there and said, who are the people we know who were big Bernie supporters who had major reservations about Hillary and are also great writers who can really do this in a way where they're thinking critically. And so we've got Collier Myers and we've got Sarah Jaffe, Meredith Tal uh, Toulousin, sorry, I had been saying that wrong in my head for years and then I actually met her. Um, she's, you know, she was writing very critically of the women's march and of the whole like kind of pantsuit nation phenomenon and all of that. Um, where I'm like, so this can, we can all be in this respectful, it's not even necessarily respectful dialogue, but a respectful series of monologues that you can see as part of a whole. Because um, I've been talking, people keep talking about unity on the left, and I'm like, I don't know if what we need is unity so much as for all of us to just be moving in the same direction in our own little kind of narrow fields. And I think that's always gonna be the case where there are always gonna be people who are most focused on reproductive justice, there are mo people who are most focused on Black Lives Matter, there are people who are most focused on LGBT or LGBTQ plus I, sorry, I worked at a school last year and um, the, it was just called the LGBT Resource Center so I said LGBTRC so many times that I started to say the R and tripped. Um, <laughs> but people are going to ha come at this with all sorts of specific things that are their focuses. Um, and we've always been doing that, and we've always been like, all right, well, sometimes you annoy me, and sometimes we don't agree exactly on how to approach this, but we know we're all operating in good faith, and we're all trying to get over there in our own ways and pull each other along when we can. Um, so that's what I would like to see more than all of us, like, sitting down, hashing it out, like, okay, who was right about 2016? Would Bernie have won? Um, and a lot of people, you know, we need to stop acting like we can't move forward if we can't get everyone to kind of agree on an answer to that. Wonderful. Well, I think we're actually just about time now for our Q&A. Don't be all Seattle about this, y'all. <laughs> you know better. Can I start with a question? I'll start with a question. What would you three say to teachers who are feeling pressured to be neutral in the classroom in front of their students now? I quit a job at a university because I couldn't stand having to pretend to be neutral. Um, I, I wasn't teaching, I was working um, in a resource center. I was in the Women's Resource Center, so we were the WRC. Um, and we had an explicit social justice mission yet heard within days of the election that we had to be careful not to alienate the Trump supporters who were feeling very attacked on campus. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I was like, you know, who's feeling attacked? Probably the kids who are worried their parents are gonna be deported, you know, for starters. Um, and so the idea that I wasn't allowed to actually prioritize the most threatened students and their needs and their emotional health was just so 
anathema to why I took the job in the first place that I was like, I can't do it. But I mean, other people aren't as flexible as I am or have, you know, are much more embedded in their careers there. Um, and it's very hard because you do have, you know, who knows if a kid is recording something and taking it back to their Trump parents and um, their Trump parents, <laughs> Trump supporting parents. Who knows if you're about to be content on Breitbart. Mon pa Trump, yeah, so that, um, to, to exactly that, to be, I, I had a, sorry, I'm rambling, but um, I spoke at a university a couple of weeks ago and a woman came in and said, is this where the feminazis reading? And set up a camera at the back. Um, Hitler was a notorious feminist, by the way, just so you hmm? know. That's where that came from. Hitler, total feminist. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's why we are feminazis, because, you know, yeah. Hitler, yeah. Um, did a lot for women, that guy. Um, yeah. yeah, I but, mean, that clip is going on Breitbart. <laughs> 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 but so... Knowing that this woman came in with this attitude and a camera, I was so rattled, and it's probably the worst talk I've ever given, because I just kept thinking, this is going all over the like, men's rights activist internet, and, and yeah, and I just lost it. Um, so it's, there's a very real fear of what can happen if you express an anti-Trump opinion in public, um, or even in the semi-public setting of a school. And I don't know, I, I tell yeah, I a lot say, of stories, I don't have an answer. Yeah, I, I would say, and uh, interestingly, I was a public school teacher very early in my career for five years. Um, and I, I remember, I was very political, I was part of this group called Teacher for, for Social Justice, and I, you know, I, I think right now, first of all, is like an opportunity for all of us to show moral courage in a moment that is gonna be remembered in history as a very, very dark time, like I don't, want to underestimate that. Um, so, so I would encourage us to be as courageous as possible, as is possible within your means and what the repercussions are gonna be, only you know that. Also, the teachers that I remember the most in my entire career are the ones that stood for something, um, and specifically the ones that stood up for the voiceless. So that's all. I know, I, I'm definitely, this wonderful. I'm the mom of two school-age kids, so I've got a 11th grader and a 4th grader. And so the day after the election, um, I was in the schools, um, meeting with Dean's students, meeting with the head of the um, diversity um, for the district, and we were talking about this while we literally had students, especially at the high school, crying in the halls. Um, students whose parents were undocumented, who didn't know if their you know, parents were going to be deported. Uh, trans students who had just been very excited about like the high school kind of like they had the student-led like bathroom diversity relabeling project um, and we're suddenly feeling you know so crushed um, our children feel a lot of our children really feel like we've really fucked this up for them like they don't they can't vote you know and they're just looking around like who like my nine-year-old we have a neighbor who's a Trump supporter and I, I used to catch him just staring out his window <laughs> You. <laughs> um, I think, though, the cool thing about teaching, and I'm going to speak you know, specifically to primary teachers and high school teachers, where I think it is incredibly important, these are the people who are going to be inheriting all of these decisions that we're making now, is to remember that our job right now is to kind of preserve what they knew before we started teaching them 
else, you know, other things. Um, and they, they fundamentally knew if issues like fairness. Have you ever cut in front of a kid in line? <laughs> like these things matter so much to them and we consistently tell them that it doesn't. We tell them to suck it up and life isn't fair. Sometimes you don't always get the right thing. Why are we teaching our kids these things? Why are we teaching them? That's how you end up with kids who look at injustice and go, ah, sometimes some people just lose out. And that's not true. We need them throwing those flopping on the floor fits about everything that's unjust in the world throughout their entire life. Because where we need it now, it's not happening. And I think the, the lucky thing about school is, honestly, if teachers are honestly holding to the ideals that they say they have as teachers, it's incredibly political. Um, and you don't even need to make a speech if you just do the things that you actually haven't been doing enough of that you should have been doing all along, which is affirming the identity of all of your students. You don't even have to make a political speech, but when I have teachers who have a, you know, who, who never say, who are afraid to say this was a black inventor because the word black gets stuck in their throats, they're not actually fulfilling their regular duties that they should have no matter what the politics are of actually recognizing and seeing diversity in the world, showing children that people of you know, any circumstance, any color are all capable of doing amazing things and contributing. You know, when we don't see any stories with any disabled kids and things like this, these are all things that they can do. You don't even have to make a political statement. Just actually adhering to the things that we all say our teachers do, which is supposed to be loving these children equally, seeing these children for who they are, recognizing their potential as children, creating spaces where they are, you know, safe from bullying and harassment. All of that is everything Trump hates. And you don't even have to say, I hate Trump. If you live like that, you can't love Trump. And you don't even have to say it. And you just have kids who will wake up appalled and they will vote accordingly if that's what's normalized in their environment every day. So it's not even that hard. It's just, it takes... Just start recognizing what you actually haven't been doing that you should have been doing all along if you're teachers in this room. Okay. So what keeps me hopeful is thinking of this time as the patriarchy's last stand. And so um, my question, what I'd like to hear from you folks is how can we damn well make sure this is the patriarchy's last stand? That's a great question. Um, maybe if we just start calling it that. <laughs> um, I mean, honestly, we kind of keep joking, and I'm going to take this first because Samita has been the more hopeful person generally, and like, she's got a great, here's how we move forward answer, and I'm like, no, everything is terrible. Um, but. I would love to think of it as the patriarchy's last stand. I fear that if you look at history, there's no way. It cycles. Each cycle, maybe it gets a little bit better, makes it better for the next few generations, then there's backlash, then you keep going, and then the patriarchy stands again. Um, and I mean, that is true of white supremacy. We've got an amazing um, essay in the book by Mary Catherine Nagel, who's a member of the Cherokee Nation, where she, which is literally just like, Okay, white people, thanks for catching up, but like my people survived Andrew Jackson, we're gonna survive Trump. Um, and, you know, although the shitty thing about it is not all of her people did survive Andrew Jackson, and already we're losing people who didn't have to die because of who's in power right now. Um, you know, Puerto Rico, for starters, 
people losing healthcare, all of that. Um, and so, so I'm not super optimistic that this is something that like, okay, we can let them have their last hurrah, it'll be terrible for a while, and then the future is feminist, but um, I think the more we work on teaching children to live those values, I think the more we resist. I mean, the other thing that we've been really happy seeing um, in the last few days on book tour is just a lot of older women coming up to us and saying things like, I have been quiet all my life, I have eaten shit all my life, and I'm done. Yeah. So, yeah. it's... Uh, <laughs> Um, so it's not even just about the hope in the next generations. It's the hope in our generation. It's the hope in the generations older than me, too, that um, the more of us who say we're done, the closer we get to the patriarchy's last stand. Yeah, I mean, it's mind-baffling. It's baffling to me how we are in this double consciousness of a time where someone like Beyonce can exist and put an album out like Lemonade and in the same year Donald Trump can become president. Like my brain cannot comprehend how those are happening <laughs> at the same time. But for those of you that, you know, have seen the news in the last couple of days, like Harvey Weinstein's last stand is happening right now. Um, and uh, I don't think he even realizes. <laughs> um, and I do think that while all of the reporting, and I just want to give a big shout out to journalism, because I think journalism is having a moment right now. <laughs> and, um, while what happened and the kind of pussy grabbing tape that came out before the election, although that did not sway the electorate, uh, much to our disappointment, um, I do think that we are, as a culture, we have access to information and we are no longer, as Roxane Gay puts it, worshiping at the altar of monsters. Um, I call it the post-Bill Cosby time where I do think that young women are growing up and they're just not having this shit. Like they're like, no, I'm not doing that. And, and that is both giving me hope and while I do think the cycles of patriarchy will come and they will come, but to see what is happening, to see men actually paying social consequences for having a lifetime of abusing women, I mean, that to me is some amount incremental progress. Hi, um, give me a couple minutes here because I've got a lot inside. Um, I really appreciate what you guys are saying about moral courage and women speaking up because there's so much rage that women have and they should have it and they're, and it can be turned into something really positive for the whole world because right now we have basically we could have all the world at stake with this monster this fascist monster that could you know nuke the whole planet <laughs> and um one thing is that i thought the women's march was tremendous in washington dc and we need that like every day in this country and i want to know what you think about that because i'm part of driving out these fascists, and I think it's possible. And one of the things holding people back is that they aren't, we aren't in the street all the time. We're not showing how much we hate this president and the whole cabinet, they're all fascists. And so one thing is how do we get people to understand that they, you know, as much as they hate it, they have to be much more vocal and much more active. And it's actually gonna be something that's never happened in this country before. And we're starting on November 4th, I hope some of you know about this, to go on the streets nationwide, all the major cities, and, and be out there every day saying they must go. It's a nightmare. 
All of us here have had nightmares. I mean, this is horrific. This is horrific for the planet. And we have the potential to actually force out the government, create a huge crisis. It's, it's been done in other countries, and it is going to take us way out of our comfort zone. We all know that. It's much easier than voting, and everybody's got to be out there. The Democrats, the young people, the most oppressed country that are getting it the most, the immigrants, you know, black people, native people, Latinos, they, they already think they're un under fascism, because basically they are. But other, you know, classes, and I'm really glad you're talking about classes, because that's really important. And all the classes need to get together as a power. We don't want to be sectarian. We w it's all bigger than all of us. We can't be squabbling. I mean, this, the planet's at stake. So if you can address any of that, and I really encourage people to get <laughs> involved. Refusefascism.org. You it's said very really serious. I you, saw you on the way in. You said you made really serious and important points. Mm -hmm. um, we, and we did not mean to laugh at you at all. That was just... You said so many serious, important things to, that to then pick, what am I going to address? It's, it's hard to know where to start. Um, I think all of this matters. I, I do think, you know, people ask us about we have revolution in the subtitle, and then it's like, well, what do you mean by that? And I'm like, oh, I'm not really calling for bloody revolution or a coup, I guess, but it's... Part of it is doing that, like we're all having to do kind of calculations in terms of moral courage that we haven't had to do before. Whether it's something like, I'm gonna stand up and say something in a classroom that could get me fired, or I'm gonna take it to the streets because I actually want to get this government out of power. Um, or even, you know, I'm just, I'm gonna stand up and do something that I have never done before. And a lot of us are putting our lives on the line, more, or not even necessarily our lives. A lot of people are, a lot of people have no choice about whether their lives are on the line. Um, but putting our reputations on the line, putting, um, putting ourselves out there, making ourselves more vulnerable to criticism and even to kind of nasty attacks. Like all of those are things we have to be considering doing now because there is such moral urgency and trying to be, you know, trying to do the same things that we've always done got us here. What are we going to change now? Um, and I think, you know, I think the reality is we're all going to have to be working in our own communities mostly. It's amazing and wonderful when we get a bunch of people out into the streets, but we still live in the society where people have to go to work, they have to eat, and whether it, you know, a constant march may or may not be sustainable, but what's sustainable is finding the groups in your community who are bringing people together for conversations like this and who are getting out the vote and who are, especially if Zerlina Maxwell, one of our wonderful contributors who worked on the Hillary Clinton campaign, like, she was the one when we did this at the New York Public Library the other night who kept being like, and Russia, like, everything we say about this, and Russia. Um, and, and one of the most effective ways to resist foreign interference in the election is to just get so many voters signed up and get so many more people to the polls that like they guess wrong about how many votes they need to fuck up. Um, but yeah, I think finding the people who are actually around you doing the work in real life and or finding the internet communities um, is the way to figure out what's next and to find people who support you in those decisions about how courageous you're gonna be um, and how bold the steps you take are gonna be.
Yeah, and I would say um, Nicole Chung's essay, which I think is so powerful, really gets at. So I, I do think that it's exciting to see activists so emboldened and in the streets. And while we are having a lull right now, I think that they will continue to take to the streets. And, and that is one of the things that is giving me the most hope right now um, is all the young activists that I'm meeting that are, that are marching in the streets. But I also think every single person in this room probably knows somebody who knows somebody who voted for Trump. And that's your personal network and that's your personal community. And I know that's some of the hardest work in your life, but having those conversations of like, whoa, like how did we get so different? What went wrong? Or maybe you're not even that different. Because I really think we are at a point where we need to rebuild our union. Like we need to rethink how we relate to everybody around us. And I mean, I know, and you might be having this experience too, where I'm like, we're traveling all these different places and I'm like, oh, like I get into a car and I'm like, this person might not want me in this country. Like, I have not felt like that since the days after 9-11, where I'm like, oh, oh, shit. Uh, could the, am I in enemy territory? Literally. And that's how I feel. I'm not saying that's legitimate or whatever, but that is how I feel. And that, to me, suggests such a break in trust. And the only way we can rebuild that trust, I think, is through the people that we love and that love us and have to listen to us. I mean, I campaigned my mother for 30 years on gay marriage. I'm not even gay. Like, I was just like, you have to accept my friends. You have to. <laughs> and, like, she does now. So I, it, it takes a long time, but I think that's kind of what we have to do right now. You know, I would say it's interesting when people bring up the Women's March and say we need more of that because, for me as a black woman, um, the Women's March was an incredibly traumatic time for me. I sat at home and I bawled. I mean, like, hyperventilating, panicking, bawling because I had friends buying tickets to go to DC for this, so excited. So many of friends who I'd never once seen at a single Black Lives Matter march, mm. who I'd never seen, you know, wade into these political areas on trans rights. Um, I was begging while we were dying in the streets, and I had people who were more willing to go and protest what might happen to them in the future than what was currently happening now. And I bring this up not to make people feel shitty, which I know is like, what, I mean, people are like, oh, well, am I supposed to feel bad? Well, yes, but also that's not my point. <laughs> it's because Trump did not just suddenly appear, right? He came out of our culture that said it was okay to prioritize certain people over the other. And that discomfort for some was more important than oppression for others. That culture is what sustains Trump and what will bring the next Trump. And getting out and, to me, continuing to protest how it might reach you and not looking around to seeing how the worst has already happened and has been happening to plenty of people in this country for a very long time is just another shade of the exact same thing because you will turn on your neighbors once your needs are met, if you don't learn how to look at these things differently. Trump was elected because it's okay right now to let racist jokes slide. Trump was elected because it's okay to let casual sexism slide. Trump was elected because we, we consistently value the humanity of certain people more than others. And I would love to see us looking at all of the opportunities that we missed so that we can see them in the future. There are so many conversations we could have been having for years. 
to just get people used to looking at other people. It really is a lot about acclimation. If you've never had to consider the needs of other people, if you've never had to sacrifice yourself for people that you wouldn't on the surface think you have a lot in common with, that could feel like the biggest imposition in the world. And you just, that's a muscle you gotta build. And these are things that we could have been doing. We could have been making these small asks. We could have been asking in our office meetings, how come it's all white dudes in here? We could have asked that five years ago. Got them used to seeing some non-white dudes, worked their way up. And so I think that it's really important that we recognize when we're looking at this to not just look at, oh, this could be so bad for these people, and look at who it's already bad for. Because if we can't get used to looking at things that don't just serve our own interests, and really stopping and saying, no, the people being harmed right now are worth the time and are worth the effort, we're just going to create the same hierarchy and the same system. So I think we always have to be really cognizant of that. You know, that our goal should not be, I've said this before, to stop the worst that has already happened from happening to you. Our goal should be first to help those to whom it's happening to, who it has happened to, so that we can actually find lasting solutions and move forward. Otherwise, those people will always be left behind. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. This Nasty Women book tour event was presented by Town Hall Seattle in partnership with NARAL Pro-Choice Washington at Seattle First Baptist Church on October 10th. Thank you again to Sonia Harris for our recording. You can hear the full recording on our website, KUOW.org. Tune in again soon.